I'm Q Ling, Carolyn Valverde, and I'm Associate Professor of Asian American Studies and the Founding Director of the New Vietnam Initiative at UC Davis. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thanks for coming on today. And we will get to this idea of new Vietnam studies because that is a, a big question for me. But before we get into all that, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into academia? Oh, <laughs> I think I'm the, I, I say that I'm the um, accidental academic because I, I think I really struggled in school, actually. And I didn't see my myself as a teacher, professor, but in retrospect, I think that's what I was really um, destined to do. And so I think what happened was, I, you know, in typical fashion of, you know, immigrant, refugee, Vietnamese American, my family wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, that kind of thing. And I think they thought I was going to be maybe a lawyer and they were like, okay, fine. Um, but once I got onto campus, I was really bitten by the bug of ethnic studies and really the, um, you know, seeing that, wow, there's so much to learn and write about my own community. And I really think it started even in high school when I did projects and all I wanted to do was interview people and ask them about their experience and, and even answer questions I had, which is why were some of my smartest friends in this thing called new wave gangs, you know, <laughs> and, you know, those little things, you know, and then, um, or then, oh, why are, are, you know, the Amerasians treated differently? And why do you think I'm Amerasian? And, you know, that kind of stuff. So a lot of questions around that and, and, or why do they call me, you know, like, um, you know, kind of like, She's the American one, you know, and then in the context of Vietnam, like, you know, or something like that, you know, why were I was I given these names? And so just more curious than anything. And um, and with that curiosity, I think led me to, again, ethnic studies programs um, where there were, um, you know, a lot of history around Asian Americans. But how they looked at our community was very strange. Um, it was so new still, you know, I'm, I'm a pre-75er. So, you know, some of the first groups to go to university as young people, like the 1.5 gen. And so I was kind of shocked by the ways in which they were talking about the community, you know, politically speaking. And then um, when I got into deeper, I realized, wow, you know, our community um, has a very specific uh, political point of view and um, is not shared by, you know, the mainstream Americans or mainstream Americans or, you know, and then I'm like, wow, there's just so many different diverse points of view and that I was really interested in in writing that history, writing that experience. I think all of us as young people, you know, living whatever we're living, uh, we're interested in in writing about that. And then um, it just always takes like a decade or two before the book comes out. <laughs> and then by then it's like ancient history, you know? You, you know, but, speaking yeah. of that, speaking of ancient history, do you ever feel like um, writers and identity sort of chasers like us uh, that you read about, authors that you read about, um, eventually in their 60s or 70s or something, do they settle in into who they are? Or do you think it's a lifelong chasing ordeal for us? Whoa. Um, I think my, that's a good question. I think 
personally speaking, um, it would be a, a lifelong journey to figure out who the heck I am. Um, but as a, you know, a scholar and one that, you know, tries to facilitate um, stories, I'm always on a mission of um, getting people to tell their stories yeah. <laughs> or uh, getting young people to tell their stories unapologetically um, and not feel they have to hold on to a story that they feel is more compelling or more traumatic that, you know, whatever story they have to talk about, like, you know, they can. And I mean, that's what I do in my first class, first day of class in my Southeast Asian American courses. I say, hey, you never asked for my permission, but you have my permission to write your story. You don't have to write my generation story or the one previous. That is just as valid as anything else to write your story and and most of them just like start crying <laughs> or or sigh a relief that because they really thought they needed to carry on a certain narrative you know and so I guess to answer your question I think at first and foremost people need to feel like they can tell their story um without kind of censorship or self-censorship or this like oh kind of honoring you know past histories um and then for me personally I I'm still chasing what it is to be Vietnamese, Vietnamese American, Vietnamese and diaspora, Viet Q, you know, mixed race, you know, I'm like cons women, you know? Yeah. How old were you when you came uh, to the United States? Um, I was uh, around three. And you are, uh, you're, you come from a mixed uh, heritage background? Yeah. So my, both my parents are mixed race from the European period, the French period. And so so, um, and I know this because they told me, but also because um, DNA shows that I'm like this weird mixture of about 70% Vietnamese and then the rest is European. So did they grow up uh, in Vietnam with mixed heritage parents? I mean, can you tell me about that? They, um, yeah. So my, my uh, man, this is a long story and it's like a weird one, but um, my, on my mom's better. side, oh God. <laughs> Yeah, like buckle in. <laughs> no, so on my mom's side, um, so I, yeah, the, the funniest thing is people always say, man, she's only a quarter. How come she looks so not Vietnamese, right? But my mom is um, Eurasian. Um, her father is um, Spanish, but grew up and um, lived in France. So he was part of the, you know, the missionaries, uh, I'm sorry, not the missionaries, um, the the soldiers that were coming to Vietnam um, during the French period. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Spanish, I'm, I'm probably Basque, you know, background, but in um, long time, multi-generation living in Provence in France. So that's my father's background. And he was, um, I mean, my grandfather. And so my mom is half, like straight up half from the European you know, um, era. Then my my grandmother is mixed race uh, on my Banoi. And so she is, uh, so my paternal grandmother is mixed race. You know, she says she's uh, a quarter. That could make sense. She could also be half more likely. But my father um, and and my aunts and uncles on my, on my paternal side look mixed. And, and uh, their children look like me. <laughs> but they're the pure Vietnamese, right? So it just came out one day. I think my mom, my grandmother was in her 80s. And I was just, we were in you know bed with my sister. And she says, I have a confession. You know, I have a confession. And she's like, um, 
I mix. And she went into this, oh my God, dramatic, long epic story of her mixedness and um and her family background and you know it was phenomenal and my sister who's like worse in Vietnamese than I am looked over to me and she said did I understand right and then um uh, we kind of laughed about it because we always knew that anyway we kind of joked that you know someone in the family ran too slow in the village you know and then that kind of joke but uh, but in reality um she was um she kept a um, secret up why, to, why was it such a, a big deal for her? Yeah, it's hard to say because, you know, she came from a family of bankers and married a governor and so on. Oh, I know what it was. Um, her mother, and this is very typical, um, her mother was married to her, um, her her father who, and he was, um, you know, banker and mixed race and and she and had a, a, another life and had another family and so um she was um devastated so she ran back to her village and in her village she remarried and all that and so she took my grandmother like you know just took her away and it wasn't until they moved back to hanoi that um the family was like we've been looking for you you know since you were taken away and um and this is your family and so my grandmother was had secretly kept in touch with her father's side of the family until her mother found out. And so it was always, um, you know, she was also always made pretty clear that if you talk about that side of the family and mix is just a part of that factor, then you are, um, um, you know, going against your stepfather who raised you, going against my wishes because I was, you know, this woman that was done wrong. And so I think in the back of her mind, she just didn't, she couldn't talk about that side of the family yeah that's part of it this episode is brought to you by red boat fish sauce i love cooking with red boat because it's made with only two ingredients wild caught anchovies and sea salt this premium fish sauce is made in fukuok vietnam and bottled right here in california you can find red boat at select asian supermarkets like 99 ranch h mart and tong fact i i you know and probably being mixed didn't help <laughs> yeah and and all of these things, it's, uh, you know, when we're growing up, we don't realize how much of an impact all this information and data points affect us. And as we're going through, right? And as we're going through yeah. life and studying and reading and talking to people, these things come up. They what do. Yeah. And I feel like a, another factor that runs through our community is this idea of secrets and um, and piecing together the puzzle of our history as fragmented as it is. Just and, and you know, we're of a generation like we don't make judgments on what happened in the past, but um, but they make judgments they because of the societal norms in which they were growing up. But we're just we just want to know our our history. Right. We just want to know our background and um, without judgment and. Yeah. yeah, and I think that we're able to do that because of the um, the normalization of just mistakes, accidents, human yeah. humanity being humans, and I think there's uh, we've removed the barriers of religion for the most part. We've yeah, removed mm -hmm. a lot of cultural judgments that you know, so we're able to kind of live as our own anthropologist, looking peering backwards right. without any judgment. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? <laughs> I, you know, honestly, maybe it's um, cliche in some ways, but it's just this feeling I have when I'm back in Vietnam is a feeling I have when I hear Vietnamese spoken. It's a feeling I have when I, 
you know, drawn to Vietnamese food in the in the way that I am. Um, and it is this idea too that, you know, I've been told that I could maybe pass or, you know, reject my community or what have you. And my thought was, why would I? Like, you know, so it's it's just always been ingrained in me by birth and by choice that I am Vietnamese. Yeah. There's yeah, there's a there's a really joke too that, that um I am I call myself Mujam Vujam Nuk Mam, you know, because that's a hundred percent something, right? Because people always want to say, oh, you're not a hundred percent something, you know, and I feel I am a hundred percent Nuk Mam. <laughs> when you go back, when we go back into this uh academic path and you say you weren't a good student, well, what led you down to becoming uh, somebody in academia. I mean, it's a, it's a hard path to get that degree, and then it's a hard path to go and teach and deal with yeah. the politics and all of it. What was yeah. the deciding factors of of you going in that direction? I think maybe two. One is really basic, which is I think I'm really good at it, and so I just you know I'm I'm not good at like the the mechanics of it. I'll be honest, but I'm really good at theorizing and thinking and looking at patterns. Like, I think I just naturally am that, you know, um, social scientist, anthropologist, like that's just my nature. I, I'm good at that. Um, I think the other reason, once I got into a position um, at a university in a tenured position, I, I was always, you know, from the beginning, in the beginning, I was like, oh, I better keep this job because I really want to model and I really want to create you know, a um, a pathway for my young Vietnamese students and Southeast Asian students, Asian students, whomever, to um, to pursue academia because I knew that there weren't a lot of people in my position to do that, and so I kept on like, no matter what, I was like, just keep this job so you can you can help the next generation, you know. And then when um, and then in position I am now is like, okay, same, you know, just like just continue to do a good job so that you can make sure that, you know, um, students see you up there talking about these, you know, radical ideas um, that they will be moved to explore and um, and ask questions and get to answers and and have a and have legitimate networks that they can count on, like they can count on me to make sure that they get to the next level of where they need to go if that is their passion, you know? Um, so that's a big part of it, really, honestly, just to make sure that my students get some way because I was lucky enough to have um, mentors that saw something in me and and made sure that I got to where I needed to go. Yeah. I asked that question because like you, I didn't grow up uh, motivated to go to school. I didn't even know I was going to go to college. I just happened to do it, um, you know, after the military. But but here's where this question is going to get a little sticky and weird. Um, I just attended uh, an academic conference um, by Dr. Tung Vu in Oregon. And oh, yeah, all of these, I know him. Yeah. All these academics got together and and it was really a mystery to me how uh, some of these academics came from um, bigger institutions and then some came from smaller state institutions like San Francisco State or Notre Dame or, you know, bigger universities uh, back east. And what drives my questions all the time, uh, especially when I talk to somebody like you, is it's so damn hard to get a professor gig, right? And it's mm -hmm. so difficult to land in these different pockets. But 
some of the conversations I had with these academics were like, they were recruited to go to these big universities. And then some at the state level were fighting tooth and nail to get this position. I'm confused. What does it take to get hired in academia? What separates the people who are like being recruited at Columbia, Cornell, to go to those institutions to teach versus the ones that are like at Cal, Cal State LA, uh, San Francisco State, um, and and really trying to fight for their tenure or trying to get a position. Um, you're at UC Davis. Mm-hmm. How how That's was? Yeah. How? Um, what what, yeah. what does that mean? I think I think there were um, different camps. You know, even when I was going to school, and I. I still, I still feel that they remain the same. There are those who are just like tracked towards like the Ivy Leagues. Um, they're of a certain, mm, I guess, social station. And um, so there's that idea of there's already a network in place. And then they get recruited because of the schools that they come from, like even prestigious high schools or whatever. And then so there's this kind of track um, or they come from really, you know, um, well-informed private schools where that is their track. And so um, there is already in place where they need to go. Then there's the rest of us, honestly, (laughs) that... um, that they didn't have that. And we and and we're not even smart about it because um, for example, in retrospect, if I had just told my story in my high school application and, and applied for a Yale or a Harvard, I would have gotten in. Wow. But it's because we grew up in an ethnic community in an ethnic community where everyone experienced that. And so we don't even think to make that as a a, you know, a story or that we um, think, oh, no, but that's something we got over. Like, you know, we 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 went beyond that refugee experience and now we don't want to talk about that because we're like just like you. That's a huge mistake because most people don't have a refugee experience. Most people didn't have to go, in, you know, live in sort of poverty or be displaced or have to learn about language or have to negotiate, you know, language for their parents and and or come from, you know, um, uh, sort of very poorly resourced schools in urban squalor, you know, like that's not the norm, you know, um, but it's the norm for us. So then we don't even think to do that. So then I would say that, you know, if you are on that path, if you are of a certain, you know, socioeconomic, you know, station, then, and that includes like writers, you know, why do writers get book contracts and other don't you know uh, it's because you are in a circle where you're um, having dinners with publishers or you're having dinners with parents of publishers you know and so the so then you just happen to pitch oh I just want to write a you know random you know story and they're like well why don't you send us something well you know there are those who are writing every day have amazing stories and they don't know how to get their work published because they're not a part of this sort of network. So I will say that's one part of it, you know, um, in terms of how I got there, I think because I had no sense of how to play the game. So I did this like other weird thing. And for my school at that time, that weird thing was what they wanted. That was like, for example, I mentioned that when I was in school, um, I was even told by top scholars to do refugee studies or to do, you know, know, uh, look at the community, you know, the way it is in their, you know, assimilation process. And I was already traveling to Vietnam since 93. And and I could have even gone there earlier, actually, for various projects. And, um, and so what I observed was something very different. I observed transnational co- linkages. And I, you know, I observed very early on that they were saying, 
hey, this whole cottage industry or this whole, you know, um, set of, you know, uh, funding is coming from the overseas population. They're sustaining uh, Vietnam, which was made a political economic pariah by the U.S. So they were, you know, they had an embargo on them. So they were not doing well. So how do they sustain themselves? Frankly, it was through the overseas remittances, for example, right? So I was learning about that. And I was learning about, oh, Paris by night videos getting, you know, bootlegged into the country and people are watching that and mimicking some of those things and so on and so forth. And so I was like, whoa, you know, there are these, you know, transnational connections. And I went against area studies, which was like very much looking at sexual practices or village life or whatever. And I was going against Asian American studies at the time, which was very nation bound. Like, what are we as Asian Americans? What is our piece of the American pie? And I went, like, I bucked those two schools to meld them into this work on transnationalism. So when I went for my job, I was just this crazy outlier that was talking about this newfangled thing called transnationalism. And they're like, that's hot. We want to hire her, you know, and that's how I got hired. Or I could have easily, you know, been a part of a, a department at the time that would have said, well, this doesn't sound like what we know about Vietnamese American. We don't feel comfortable with this. So let's not hire her. We're going to keep with our old stories, you know, what we know, you know, um, that doesn't involve bilingualism or biculturalism or whatever, you know. And so, yeah, no, I mean, I would say. Um, luck. Um, the other thing too, and, and maybe some talent, but the other thing too is what was happening in universities then and now is the, the departments are very small. Ethnic studies are very small. So they usually have like one like Vietnamese, one Chinese, one Japanese, and they, they kind of clustered under that. And so when I was going into the market, um, there were quite a few windows um, open for, for a like quote unquote Southeast Asian hire. And so I think I was able to get into one of those windows. And it's it's fortunate if you open up and have more hires in these um, ethnic, you know, categories. But um, otherwise, you know, someone has that job and they're, they're there for 20 plus years. And then people are very talented scholars out and about, you know, working as lecturers or adjuncts and not able to get into the position. They're no more or less talented than I am yeah. or well-trained than I am. I will say that. Um, but... But it is um, that ethnic studies is grassroots. It's from students. It's from the community. It's never been fully supported by the top down, which is like more area studies. Like they want area studies in order to understand our enemy, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, funded by the government and, and military industrial complex, whatever. But we are from the ground. And so we're always by threat of being pushed out. And then... Um, and, you know, in my case, you have a lot of now um, Asian American studies, professional, uh, you know, Asian American studies types that fall into that, you know, mentality of what academy is, and they don't remember the history and its inception of, you know, ethnic studies. So they, they even turn on their own, you know, by saying, well, you're not you're doing too much community work, or you're helping students too much, or, you know, you should just be like, you know, cranking out books, you know, and in my university, we're a research one university where you're, you're basically rewarded for, you know, cranking out books, right? Yeah. Yeah. The idea of new Vietnam and new Vietnam studies, what does that even mean? There's so much shade and, and gray area. When I think of the word new Vietnam. What, yeah. What, what do you find uh, in that definition New Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the situation is this, um, 
maybe I should talk about the origin of why I even thought to do this. Um, I was, um, there was a um, exhibit going on in, um, I think, I believe it was 35 years around there, um, going in Oakland, Oakland, California. So they had a um, an exhibit on the Vietnam War. And um, the curator was just fascinated with these kind of like typical tropes of, you know, photography, you know, at the time. And so they had at this exhibit. It was going on during the time of the Iraqi war too. And so um, uh, I had a good friend. Um, I won't mention her name or maybe I will. But anyway, she um, she was working as a hire because they got a grant to do community outreach and um, history as part of this, right? And she she uh, brought in a bunch of, um, you know, Vietnamese American history and and they were ignoring her. So she called me up and um, she said, hey, Killing, there's um, they're going against the grant. They're ignoring my work on the Vietnamese American. In, in, in general, they're ignoring the Southeast Asian American history as part of this Vietnam uh, War and California history. And I, I'm wondering, should I call them out on it? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Do it. Go for it. Right. And she did. And she got, in, you know, unceremoniously fired. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was I just felt like shit, obviously. And then so she but the but the um, Cambodian community um, rallied against I mean, rallied for her. Right. And what happened? And then, you know, and then the Vietnamese were like, oh, um, we better do something about it. So the Vietnamese American community probably felt a little guilty for not supporting her earlier, came on to support her. And then so there was this ad hoc group that was created with scholars and community leaders. And I was a part of that. And because of that, I got carte blanche into um, the origins of the um, of the museum. And I got carte blanche into um, its development and, you know, um, even feedback when it got started. And what I noticed was that everyone felt so strongly about the Vietnam War era. And they all felt it was their history. It was their Vietnam. It was their experience. So the Chicanos who had the largest um, protests in the history of Chicano movement uh, for the moratorium, that is, they were disproportionately um, drafted for the war, um, felt this was a lasting legacy. Um, you had, um, you know, uh, folks of color that was that were talking about how it was this revolution in Vietnam that brought about revolution everywhere else. There were um, you know, uh, um, you know, nurses talking about experiences, soldiers, you know, and and African Americans that were um, very much feeling like they too were a part of a revolution, um, as you know, an oppressed you know group in the United States, right? And they were they were very much for the other side, for the north side, actually, because they're like, oh, you know, the U.S. oppresses us here, and now they're going to other parts in the imperialist project and so on and so forth. And I just had an epiphany that I'm like, oh, my God, here I am as a, as a Vietnamese American trying to express that this is my Vietnam. You know, I realized that Vietnam is not owned by me, is not owned by my community. It's owned by the world, in fact, that you cannot talk about, mm -hmm. you know, um, anti-colonial um, movements without looking at the playbook of Vietnam, you can't talk about revolution, you can't talk about anything. And, and to this day, like even the leaders of Palestine, for example, um, Arafat got training support and, um, and advisement from the Vietnamese in order to deal with what was going on, um, you know, in Palestine against the Israelis, you know, and, you know, things like that, you know, that those kind of hidden stories made you made me go, wow, 
you know, and I'm here trying to give voice to this community. And what I realized at that point is, wow, Vietnam is like more than that, you know. And then, um, and then the other part of it was, but in the West and in the in in United States in particular, the vast majority of what's written about Vietnam is the war. And here I was, you know, going back and forth to Vietnam and living there for years for my research um, and seeing the transnational dynamic linkages. Um, I was like, no, Vietnam is well beyond the war. And in fact, the Vietnam War was a drop in the bucket of 3,000 years of, you know, different kind of struggles that the that Vietnamese have, you know, as, as you know, um, those who were those, you know, countries are encroaching on them, but also them encroaching on other countries, you know, let's be real, uh, Vietnam also had imperialist aims, you know, and so um, it was all that that um, made me think, well, um, I, history is important, history is, you know, teaches us lessons, um, history shows us patterns, you know, and all that's important, but where Vietnam is now, and, you know, and that was like, at that time, when I was starting up this, my center was like, about 40 years out, right? And now it's almost 50 years out. Vietnam is very different. And mo for most of us who have kind of any kind of connection, to that country would know this or have research on, you know, the community here and it's, it's uh, effects on and effects, you know, of the country will um, also understand that. But, um, but most people don't. So I was very much like, okay, we need, um, and there's so many scholars out there doing this kind of work. We need a, a, a center to really help facilitate these kind of conversations, right? Let, let, the people know wherever they are in the world that there is this new Vietnam, right? New being, and, and so new is like where it is now and moving towards the future. And maybe old would be the old narratives of Vietnam as, you know, a limiting, um, you know, uh, connected to uh, a, only a period in time, a small period in time that we call Vietnam War era. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And so it just sounds like a very broad definition of anything after 75. Um, really, I, I we just focus on, you know, whatever issues are affecting the youth now and the youth. I kind of um, like 40 and under. I know that's a very old youth, but it's a younger population of what is important to this group, you know, and then we would uh, we have programming and research and whatever else to really address that, you know, like, um, like, for example, looking at, say, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, how who were the Vietnamese that were involved in the, the making the beginnings of the Silicon Valley, you know, and then how are those, um, uh, you know, and how, how, ha I mean, it's really intricate. A lot of my work goes deep into like, how did internet get started in Vietnam? Well, it started out with, you know, um, connections with those in Australia and United States in the Silicon Valley that helped um, individuals in Vietnam get trained in what was happening in terms of internet and and going to places like UC Berkeley and then going back to Vietnam and starting up internet there. Like people don't know this history, this very transnational, you know, deep, deep under the radar of, say, anti-communist protesters, etc. history that has now made, you know, where Vietnam is. And, and now it has like campuses of, you know, um, internet and so on and so forth. So that was one of our international symposiums or, and, and, and looking at ways in which, you know, where investments goes and things like that, or even looking at a topic that is entrenched in Vietnam war era, like Agent Orange, but showing that 
there's a documentary that is nominated for Academy that is looking at the, you know, uh, the uh, efficacy and the agency of those who are truly afflicted from Agent Orange, looking at the cleanup, looking at the societal um, um, issues that families face that have long standing, you know, um, issues with, um, you know, uh, those who've been afflicted with Agent Orange. So it's in our lands, it's in our ecosystem, right? And you're probably aware of that where, you know, the birds and the fish and, the, and where we grow, it's all, you know, there. Um, and, and, and scientists say there's no end to that. We don't know when it can really truly be out of our lands. So what that means is, you know, it's part of our DNA um, that, you know, women fear taking ultrasounds because they do not want a child who has, you know, um, Agent Orange, um, you know, symptoms, right? And I go to the hospitals and I see children being born on a daily basis with severe um, deformities due to Agent Orange. So, um, you know, we look at it from the, you know, um, the film, you know, um, our, our part of it from the from the scientific part of it, from the social part of it, and and who are still, you know, um, looking at uh, at these issues and and bring it to the forefront. So, you know, we take a look at various things, and I think one of the most um, important ones we looked at recently um, was on uh, uh, South China Sea, um, and that's you know where they were building you know, basically Cold War on sea, where they had the, the Russians and the British and the Americans and, and the Chinese in particular, all kind of co converging into South China Sea, which has the world's second uh, largest, second largest oil reserves offshore, um, the most traffic trade route, um, and most fishery. And so it is the reason why Vietnam historically since ancient time has been important and was important for Americans and others during the war is because of the resources there. Like that's what it is, you know? And so um, it continues to be very um, important. So the Filipinos and the Vietnamese and the Chinese are, you know, kind of, you know, um, fighting over that area. So we had um, three, during COVID, we had um, three workshops that looked and online that looked at um, um, this issue. And we had thousands and you know, the 10,000s of viewers across, um, you know, the, the seas, because um, this is, a, this is really affecting Vietnamese um, sovereignty, not to mention Filipino, but also, um, you know, um, China's, um, you know, air, land, sea, uh, you know, mandates uh, trying to take over um, much of this area because it is about, uh, for them, um, control of trade routes, right? Because yeah. they want to control that. When I think about all the conflicts that are happening within our Vietnamese uh, sort of diaspora overseas in Vietnam or, you know, all the little enclaves that are Vietnamese related, you know, you start to analyze and think about all these things and sometimes they're not even related. It's weird. It's and what I mean by that is this, um, like this whole idea of reconciliation, right? You know that was brought up in this year. I, I went to a few events, and you know the word was brought up. And in some cases, the Vietnamese government and the Canadian government have been working with each other alongside each other since the '90s to bring capitalism into their economy. Or you start to you know research uh, Fulbright University in Vietnam right now, and they're thinking with the Vietnamese government is about academic freedom. But on the flip side, you have like all of these people who are waving, you know, the three stripe flag uh, here in the United States. And it's like ships in the night missing each other. Everything's like all over the place with just weird uh, paths 
to me. Mm -hmm. They're just strange. Some are in direct conflict and some are not. Some are um, kind of fantastic of uh, fantasy like in their in their mind when you think about the older generation well, i i i mean i i will say there's two thoughts on this okay yeah they're very they're very different um one would i would say and i won't mince words the sheer trauma of growing up in a community where there is so much censorship that one dared not to create art, writings, scholarship, you name it, for fear of being called a communist or you know, and that created a terror. I mean, it was terrorism, where we then self-censored. We dared not say anything. Um, because your house could be burned down, people can be killed, you can be ostracized from the community. I'm not going to mince any words. It was severe. And then you think, uh, but you think about the, the the relationship of that sort of uh, ethos, right? I mean, that's the exact same thing that we ran from, and we. Oh, it's inside of our DNA to be. Uh, uh, you know, I don't. I okay, okay. I will make an argument. You, you're going to many places that I that there's many things I have to say about. So, okay, so that's one aspect of it, right? So let's go down that, and then I can go to the other part of it. So you're saying yes, that what I'm describing sounds like communism, <laughs> and um, and um, I've had that happen. You know, I was um, a joiner scholar, a loose foundation scholar in in um, in Boston, and um, and I was. Um, I, I, I decided to interview one of the protesters because they're like, oh, you know, they, they've given scholarship to those from Vietnam. And so that there's communists and then they've given it to this person at the time I was young. So they're like to this kid, <laughs> what does she know about history? You know? And then, so um, I interviewed one of the protesters and he, he was, you know, a, 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 an academic of sorts and, uh, but he was in prison and he came out and, and when I came to him, he said, uh, I know you. I know your history. And he started to list off, all, you know, my biography and it was bogus. Okay. And then I just had like, oh my God, that triggered when I was in Vietnam and they rounded up my friends and who spoke to me. And I thought I was in the clear, but I was in researching in Hanoi and they rounded up people that I came across with and started saying, you, we know her, this is her history. And they, it was a bogus history. And so Literally, I had very similar experiences in 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 both the United States from one camp and in Vietnam by like the police, Coman or whomever, you know. And so, yeah, the irony is not lost on me. Um, so, I, okay, so I will say that is one aspect of it, and we're very in a very different place now, thank God. Um, but that it took me twenty years to write my book, and when it came out, there were still these like raging, you know, um, fiery thoughts on that issue is a testament to um to how much we we didn't change right now on the other side what you talk about in terms of like ships moving in the night and they seem so unrelated um i can make relations but i think what's more important to think about it and how i think about it is those are histories and it's legitimate you have the history of a person who is wholeheartedly hanging on to a 20-year period of what's called South 
Vietnam, right? It was only 20 years, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But those 20 years is a generation, right? And so for that generation, that is their nation. That is their, you know, what they know and that's what they'll hold on to. And so for everyone else, they grew up in the US or Vietnam was unified, life most goes on. But for that group, it was very, very important to hold on to that history. And they fear, um, rightfully so, that it could be miswritten or it, miswritten in the way they wouldn't improve of or it would be forgotten. So people hang on to that history. Then simultaneously, there's real life situations that's happening every day. Trade is going on. There's massive amounts of overseas Vietnamese coming back to Vietnam, investing, vacationing, visiting family, marrying, so on and so forth, right? So all that is going on simultaneously. And so they seem they seem like they're not connected, but they're connected. I mean, I remember one time there was um, a protest in Southern California. It was uh, FOB2. And um, there was a gentleman in fatigue protesting about this exhibit that really was looking to bring artists together from Vietnam and the U.S. to talk about this, like, 40 years of Vietnam or something like that. And, and one of the gentlemen had just gone to Vietnam and married a Vietnamese person, you know, ostensibly a communist, right? Um, and brought her back to the U.S. And that's okay, right? But not, you know, uh, young people having an exhibit on art about their experience as Vietnamese people. So the irony is not lost on anybody. And um, it happens simultaneously. And people sort of rationalize that one is okay and one is not okay, depending on, you know, how they want to do things. But the reality of it is, you know, our histories are linked and intertwined. And um, I mean, you know, my book has a communist flag and has a, a Vietnamese, you know, uh, okay. former South... Vietnam flag and then a an American flag in there, I believe. And and when it was brought up in Vietnam, I was almost deported, you know, because these flags don't necessarily belong together um, in the mindset of those here and those there, right? Um, but it they but they do come together at points in protests. The the picture was of a protest of the protest at the FOB2 event, you know? So anyway. Um, I don't really get upset about it anymore. I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. I'm always on the fringes anyway. So I think um, that's how I just managed to maneuver. And I would have never done a, a podcast like this back in the day because um, ironically, you know, when you're a scholar, you want to get your work out. I mean, like maybe five people reach a book, right? <laughs> so you want to get your work out as much as possible. But ironically, I couldn't, um, not initially, uh, not for the initial 20 years of my research, because it could cost me um, my connection to my community here in the United States, and it could cost me access to information in Vietnam. So I could not give interviews. I could not talk about my research. I just had to really protect my informants and, um, and I actually had to build 20-year relationship with my informants in order to get the information I needed. And um, and but once the book was out, then I owned it, you know, then it's like, okay, it's fine. Yeah. You know, we can continue down this path for a long, many, many hours, but I do want to get into this so spiritual experience. Oh, you do? Yeah, I do. Because um what you just thought, what you talked about, we can continue talking about for hours, like I said, but yeah. we, we are 
limited on time. And I want to talk to you about your experience in the spirit realm, because I think as an academic, I would like to hear you break down your experience in the spirit realm. And I want to hear your thoughts on it, because I I don't really believe in any of that. Yeah, I was raised a Catholic too, and I am aware that you were raised a Catholic. Yeah, and so um, that has a lot to do with um, this idea of n- not connecting to what I think is pretty commonplace. Um, so I will. So my experience is um, of a young person growing up in Vietnam and in the United States, uh, being really afraid of ghosts or ma. Right. Um, but that's because Vietnamese people are animists. And so we believe in our like spirit of ancestors, Catholic or not, you will have images of your, you know, family, deceased family on your altar. I mean, that is that is the syncretic kind of um you know, uh, hybrid versions of our belief system that so part of it is really animus, um, spirit. We believe that spirits can hang around, can linger. We maybe, you know whatever and then so we um we we sort of maybe suppress a lot of that especially in the context of the united states um compounded with maybe our religious beliefs that are we're told there's not that and that you know life is final and you go to heaven and that kind of thing or hell and so um i just put it in the background for the longest time and it wasn't until i had my near-death experience where <laughs> i guess i went to the other side and um, so those a lot with the, you know, um, uh, NDEs will tell you the same thing, which is, you know, um, um, if they don't experience a, a certain um, understanding where they are, they definitely come with it when they leave. So um, with me is I had a harrowing um, journey in afterlife. And then I fought for what I thought to be 600 years or something like that um, to come back into this plane. And then um, and then as an academic, I was confused. You know, I was like, um, uh, what was that? You know, and then but when I when I reached the recesses of my mind, I remembered that I had already known this was going to happen. And so then I started trying to research on what that was. And that's when I, you know, went down, you know, looking at, you know, quantum physics and, and looking at, you know, um, you know, other other explanations to try to understand what happened. And um and I started teaching courses um scientifically speaking um on the spirit realm. And most of my students were pre-med students that were trying to understand, you know, some of their communities and all that too. And then so um so yeah, so I I I then I realized uh, you know and that was 10 years ago. So then now it's all caught up this idea of indigenous wisdom, this idea of our culture and this idea of um you know um uh healing properties and powers. Um it's not necessarily in a bottle, you know, from big pharma. It could be through these other ways um, through, you know, um, herbal medicine or through shamanism or through anything else um, that has been effective for thousands, thousands of years, um, you know, e- essentially um, making them scientific because if it's been effective over and over and over again, that's why people do it. There's a science to it. Um, maybe it's not a science that this, you know, um, this newly fangled Western medicine can explain, but those who have been practicing for, you know, um, eons um, across cultures can understand it. And I want to go back to the Catholicism thing because um, 
when I started to look at shamanism and I myself have sight around these issues um, and, and growing up Catholic, um, it always crosses like, you know, my shaman work and, and understanding always crosses back to even Catholicism. And so one of the things I realize is that actually in a lot of these religions, they're very similar. They come from very similar sources and very similar understanding. And it's written somewhere in this way. Like, for example, um, you know, in shamanism, um, how you become a shaman is often through a very traumatic experience. You often get very sick. It's sometimes even near death experience or you've been, you know, um, um, you know, brutalized in horrible ways. And then you're like, you know, hanging by a thread and then you come back um, and have these powers and their powers often to heal and you can heal your village or you can heal people so on and so forth and so that's in shamanism where in catholicism is very similar um we hear these stories um and so the vatican starts investigating and they investigate those who have these you know um, um miraculous um you know abilities and they make them into saints right so very similar or in in um in like you know shamanistic work for example you might say okay i'm feeling out of sorts i'm not myself and they might in in the west they'll take you to a psychiatrist or a therapist and then they you know give you you know institutionalize you or give you medicine whatever but in a place like vietnam they'll say like you go, you go look at it go to a shaman and they'll exercise you right from because there was a demon in you or those kind of things and so they explain it that way and you could be like cured of this right and so in catholicism it's the same thing you have someone that's behaving wrong or what have you they send somebody from you know the church to come and exercise you but somehow that's okay and shamanism you know and these indigenous beliefs is is weird backwards primitive and and you know what i mean so my work really is about finding points where they're very similar they're selling saying the same stories um they're talking about ultimately if we look at say jesus christ and 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 buddha and others their message is love you know their message is is um is to you know be kind um to be um you know, forgiving and gracious and and to know that the power, the power, the great power from a God is is a love. And and so those who are practicing in the most devout ways are one that preach kindness, that preach about giving, that preach about um, you know, um understanding and so on and so forth. And those messages are across, you know, um, many, many different um, belief systems, you know, and so um, it, it's this idea of we're always looking to find differentness. And I, my work is always looking to find sameness. Um, and that's true, even my work with the university, you know, um, and how it's a very divide and conquer tactic, you know, in, in getting ethnic groups against ethnic groups and then the ultimate culprit is this white male figure you know and my argument all along is is it's you know engineered uh, the differences is engineered who's on the top and who's on the bottom and so when we understand that it is socially engineered in order to extract resources from us and keep us in you know uh, a state of um you know in, in a sense um indentured you know servitude to our jobs to our debt to our you know what we perceive as success and not success um if they can keep those things going then and 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 say that it's the other person's fault because of xyz then we're fighting amongst ourselves 
versus, you know, um, those who actually have power, which is not the point, which is not the 3% or 0.01%, but it's 0.0001%, you know, that really, um, that really set up a, a, a system that just serves to divide us and, and, and doesn't allow us to um, really um, understand who we are, where we come from, and the powers that we have within us. Yeah. Now, can you tell me a little bit about that near-death experience and you said you went to the other side? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I was fighting for tenure in my university and, you know, under a lot of stress, lack of sleep. I was pregnant at the time and I um, I had an, I lost my child at home uh, at six months and um, and I was brought to the hospital and then and um, I went into cardiac arrest and my blood and pronounced dead. Um, no, no oxygen to my brain for 90 minutes as they try to resuscitate me. They kept me on every life support system you could imagine with emergency surgeries um, to boot. And, um, you know, um, they said, even if I recover, I would be, you know, at best, you know, 60%. They, they thought I was going to be institutionalized for the rest of my life. And then I miraculously came back <laughs> and um, and everyone just looked at each other like, what? And then they wrote articles about this miraculous coming back and how that could have even happened. And yeah, that that that's the sort of the technical part of it that I learned later, because for me, it was all very spiritual. I was just on the other side fighting demons and, you know, and and and, and looking at the futures and seeing how I could, you know, come back in my space and. In, in in my body, really, you know, I think I, I could have come back in any form, you know, a spirit, another body, whatever. But I was really intent on coming back to my body because I had young children, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the time. So it was really important that I was back to guide them, you know, in, in this form. And so, yeah, that was my experience. And then subsequently, I just, um, I'm in ceremony where I am able to... Um, gather information from different realms if you will. Okay. so when when i have guests on and they say i am in ceremony it typically sometimes not all the time but refers back to ayahuasca uh, no no okay so that's so, um i think that's a perfectly good way and i think any kind of you know um um herbal you know medicine that's been you know i mean because they're 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 when you work with a shaman the shaman is trying to find you medicine and that's perfectly good in my in my case my medicine if you will is um uh, music and movement and so um it just you know i just happen to know through through um it could it's just like having a conversation with someone you know and through that those messages from the other side i'm able to you know understand that music and dance are the portal to the spirit realm and so um i i go in ceremony that way a ceremony for me is just meditation just sitting down and oh, I, I, I i talked to um dr Tung Vu, and you know we had this sort of i had a question about the French and the missionaries bringing Catholicism in and we're losing, you know, uh, so much of our practices, perhaps our spiritual practices that yes. we as Vietnamese people had with the animus, with all of these things that we had for probably hundreds of years that we developed as indigenous people of that land. Right. Mm -hmm. And he said it's not wasn't such a bad thing. He goes, give him a little bit more credit, you know. And I think, you know, he comes from and my 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 mother uh mm -hmm. 
really come from this uh, pro-Catholic background, but I come from a different place. I come from a place of believing that all people on earth should be about love. And we should, we should, we should not talk about organized religion if we can't even practice the most important thing, which is loving each other, right? And that's Absolutely. It, it just goes down to that fundamental belief. And oh, it is. It's just so fundamental to me. And and you know, oh, all it is. highfalutin, you know, because I grew up in the Catholic Church, so I can talk about yeah. it, you know. It's Same. so ranks, yeah. ranking, it's so much like order, and it's just so much. But I really, at the end of the day, believe Jesus Christ was all about just giving the other cheek. Once you get hit on one side, you give the other. It's just a. a, a oh, he was. He was. He, the I ultimate mean, prophet. Yeah, amazing, Jesus Christ. I mean, see, the thing is, um, I don't believe in also once you have this enlightenment that you know that it is about love, um, that you reject a religion or reject, um, you know, an, a um, a prophet. Um, I think that, you know, I think I'm about understanding that, you know, those who've been enlightened um, have been given message, have been able to connect to the universe in this amazing way and try to tell us, you know, the ways of this. And so they, they map out, you know, they map up through, uh, you know, some of the first, first writings in the Bible, or they map out through, you know, um, scriptures, or they map out through art, they map, they map out how we can access information. And that's all that is. Uh, we just, and the information ultimately is reminding us of who we are, you know, reminding of us who we are, reminding why we're here. Um, when people understand that we choose to be here, we choose to have these lessons, and we will come back to this oneness, then people chill out a little bit more. I think people fear death, people have just too many fears, and people, um, you know, um, you know, especially now, there's a lot of talk about trauma and inherent trauma and all that. And um, you can, you know, you can explain it any which way, and that is fine. But ultimately, I'm much more, and I know this because of my practice um, and because of information I've gotten since from very young age, is that, you know, we choose to be here. We choose to have this life. You get to know your present you know, pass and you get to know all that. And then you choose, Kenneth, you chose to be Kenneth. You chose to be in a Vietnamese man who, you know, his family immigrated over here, you know, from a Catholic background who then decides he's going to do a pot. You chose all that, you know, because you needed to learn what you need to learn. And this was the best way for you to learn it in this lifetime. And that to me is very powerful. So I don't trip. Even when I, you know, um, you know, have challenges and I have them all the time. Trust me. I at least know my mission in this, in this planet. And I, I think that's the greatest gift. If you can, can, if you can be in ceremony and ask that question, why am I here? Cause that is really all we care about as people. We just like, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Right. Uh, once you have that answer, then everything else just kind of, you know, it's, it's just what it needs to be in order for us to move forward with our mission. You know? I mean, I'm thinking about your work and I'm like, wow, yeah, he has a great mission because he's connecting information. He's connecting people. And and then if people get access to that and they need to have access, you need to have a wide, you know, viewership and listenership to to get this. Then, my God, your your impact is is phenomenal. What you're doing is phenomenal. And I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I uh, I appreciate the kind words. I, I just uh, am 
kind of like in this because I, I just want to stay open enough to be able to receive information from every corner of the world through the eyes and the prism of, of Vietnamese um, heritage or Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese people and uh, or people who are, you know, allies or supporters adjacent, you know, all of that. And just through the perspective of, of the Vietnamese. Um, but I, I do know that um, whether I'm Vietnamese or Palestinian, we're living parallel lives all throughout the, the history of, of mankind. You know, um, mm -hmm. if you took the the Palestinian refugee that's suffering right now, that was, you know, mm -hmm whether that was in the North Vietnam or South Vietnam, we were all struggling and going through pain, you know, yeah. 55, 60 years ago, all the way up until, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, as Vietnam's history. And it's all like stratas and, and different um, points, Afghanistan, Ukraine, all of these sufferings are still continuing to this day. Uh, and I just feel like Vietnamese is just one way of kind of expressing these historical markers in 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 our people, but it's we're living parallel lives with with these other other refugee um, communities throughout the world. But the idea is too that we are evolving. <laughs> yes. I mean, it it seems like we're not, um, and it seems like history repeats itself a a, a lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, moments like. Um, the pandemic, you know, it, there are those who got really important lessons through that, that changed their life completely, that would have been stuck and not been able to go through what they need to go through, you know, so even um, these moments, I think, allows us to um, find a different way to get to answers. You're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. I wanted to do the podcast 10 years ago, but mm. because of the pandemic, it mm -hmm. allowed me to buckle buckle in and really yeah. you know i'm doing this and, and yeah. the other strange thing is because i've done the podcast um it's allowed me to do some other things um now that i didn't see it, it gave me skill sets to do something else that i did not see coming um in my yeah. life uh yeah. and, and i think that life is just a sort of a series of these things and then you yeah. get sort of to a place of of, of clarity and then you 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 die you you pass on and move to the next stage. Yeah, that's okay too. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, because death will come and you're dying when you're supposed to die. But in the meantime, you know, um, if you have something you want to accomplish in that time, then you, you know, you try to do it. And if you don't get it this time, you'll get it next time. It's fine. It's all, you know, it's, it's all as it should be, you know, it's all as it should be. And I get, I get, you know, and I often ask, Hey, shouldn't I be, moving along in these ways and that ways. And I always get the answer from, from spiritual. And this is an important one. And you'll get it too, is you're where you need to be when you need to be. It's just, it's the right, this is the right time for all that is to be, you know? So it's, it's not that you needed to do that 10 years ago, 10 years ago was not right. Mm. You did the podcast when you needed to do the podcast. And yes, um, the catalyst was, you know, COVID and COVID is a catalyst for many things. I mean, on the one hand, you got billionaires making more money and 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 gobbling up whatever they need to gobble up in order to create their universe the way they want to on this planet. But 
also humans and and i was saying this from the best of my knowledge humans are kind of base and pretty unevolved in many ways i mean we can attest to that let's say you know wars and atrocities and you know just the, the human condition could be pretty atrocious but i will say this my understanding is that humans at the very least or at the very most are entities that make their own choices they make their own choices. So even as you map up your life and map up your mission, you can make changes. You can change your mind and, and go on this other path. So, so in that way, we have a very strange sense of resiliency or living or, or what it is. And so no matter what, no matter how things are, um, humans are so capable of fighting to their last breath. That I will give humans. They yep. are just fighters. I agree with that. I agree. Now we're going to make a, a hard left turn here. We're, <laughs> we're going to go into a, 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 the last direction that I wanted to really talk about because it's probably both of one of our favorite topics, you and I. Uh, the topic of Aoyais. Uh, Yay! I up all the time in, in, in my... Um, and here's why I bring it up. Um, because I didn't grow up wearing it. And I wore it in... You know, when I started the podcast, maybe three years ago is when I started to put it on. Maybe two years ago, three years ago is when the first time I put one on. Um, mm -hmm. And I sometimes I feel comfortable and sometimes I feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and I realize feeling comfortable is really just a state of mind. But I have to still examine the reasons why I feel uncomfortable. Mm. You're the perfect person to kind of have this dialogue with is because I feel like, am I appropriating something that doesn't belong to me? Of course it belongs to me. My mother was an Aoyai right. maker, right? Yeah. My mother was making Aoyais way before I was born. Mm -hmm. I am that by birth. It should be allowed to wear it wherever. However, in the context of what I do in the world today, I am mm -hmm. an American. I was born in America, but I am using this garment to perhaps appropriate it for my own sort of cultural benefits. That's the okay. I get. I think, I think you have been a part of a very effective colonial brainwashing. Um, that's, okay, that's the best way I can put it. Now, I say this because my students, and I teach a course, it's fashionology, so social, political impact of fashion. We talk about Alzheimer's and everything else in there. And I often will have students that say, I can't wear the, say, kippah or hanbok or whatever their national dress is because it makes me, as you say, feel uncomfortable for a variety of reasons uh, or it makes them look weird or whatever. But maybe they don't mind a Madonna or a, uh, uh, you know, Selena or whomever wearing it because or Janet Jackson or whomever, you know, that is, quote unquote, appropriating um, these things because that's where visually they see it and people are confident about it and they just wear it with no holes bar or whatever. And they themselves are so uncomfortable around um, even thinking about that. And I think, so for me, Alzai is so, like so much of my work, it is so much more than an Alzai. Alzai is just simply, you can just call it national dress on this side of it, right? But it could represent identity. It could represent country. It could represent culture. It could represent so much. So when you are 
um, looking at, say, Alzai. When you're looking at Alzai, um, it, it, is, it is not just an Alzai. So I think you're focused on, oh, what this garment is, but you're actually struggling with issues of being Vietnamese. Okay. And okay. I got to jump yeah. in. I definitely agree. It's an issue of being Vietnamese. However, it's not what you think it is. I have two issues with the outside right now when I mm -hmm. wear it. The mm -hmm. first issue is I don't think about what Americans, white America or America, America is thinking of me. I think about all the young kids in Vietnam looking at, you know, these older 40, 50 year old people just wearing an Aoyai to a, a movie premiere going, look at this clown wearing. No. And I'm just being vulnerable and honest and open right yeah. now. That's yeah, the, no. That's the first one. The first one okay. is the, not the American view, because I feel very proud when I get to wear it out in America. Right. The, okay, so I'm thinking about what Vietnam, the motherland, is thinking about. Young, young people in the motherland. Second thing right. I'm thinking about is a gender issue. Gender-wise, mm. I am a straight Vietnamese man. And I, wow. right? This is what's going on in my mind. Because right. no, my mother, she would always tell me, only the gays wear Aoyais. Oh. And, and this is sort of like perpetuating. The There's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack. But I think that is a part of this idea of unpacking us in general, you know, and Aoyai really serves as a mechanism for that. And that's why I think it's fascinating, you know, how sartorial anything um, is such a huge part of us. I mean, we... We, we wear clothes and we don't just put on, no one puts on anything for just to put on. People, even people say, oh, I'm just putting on something to be comfortable. No, it is actually a conscious effort to even say that. It means something. It all means something in a major way, even if we think it doesn't. And so here, the first part of it is, um, you know, when, um, when there was a white, a high schooler wearing a kipao to um, the prom. Um, um, at first, people were like, eh, whatever. But then the Asian Americans were like, oh my God, that's appropriating. They got really upset. But the ones that were loudest were white people. They were like, you know, you shouldn't be doing this because they're trying to be liberal. I don't know. Um, but in any case, what, but in China and other places, they're like, how cool. Yeah. Here's a person who is interested. And so I will say to you, 100% of the time, especially in Vietnam, young people, what have you, they're like, that's cool. That's like, that's a cool brother right there, you know, donning his, I was like, good for him. And the part about being gay, I think that is like um, very much our moment in time because men wore Alzheimer's, you know, um, historically. Uh, in the same time frame as as women. And it's only in our context now that men wear it less because there was a period where, you know, maybe westernization came in and the idea of wearing Alzai represented maybe um, an older way of thinking about this. But all that is all, um, you know, manufactured and branded and, and a part of a national identity or not. So, you know, how that, you know, tomorrow, if if some government or somebody says, where if you are a male, um, wearing Aozai, that is a true being truly Vietnamese, then that's going to happen. Then that's going to be the fact. So right now, just because, you know, your mother and others of that generation are saying, oh, only LGBTQ or a gay men are wearing this because that's what they're perceiving or that's what they're seeing or that's what they're narrating, that 
just, you know, sets up a, a standard that you can follow or not follow, right? But it's it's not the reality of things. And it would change next year or the following year or 10 years from now. It doesn't matter. But but moreover, what I do, and and I would encourage you to do the same is like have that, you know, fuck it attitude. Like I'm I'm fucking, you know, Kenneth Gwynn, and I'm wearing this fucking owl's eye and I'm going to be the, you know, the standard here and, or I'm going to be leading this way and people, other people are going to be like secretly go, Oh, that's cool. You know? And then they start wearing it and that's how it happens. Because, um, because if, you know, I mean, I get it. And I think, I think it's just, I think at your age to have this fear, I think it's more of um, the struggle with everything. It, it's really beyond the owl's eye. Masculinity for sure. It's, it's everything, you know, this idea of masculine identity for for a 48 year old Vietnamese man born in America. It's a it's a it's a lifelong journey to unpack this shit. It's, you know, wow. when it comes to oh, maybe as I could, you know, help you, you know, do this, because once you wear that and, you know, and I think that's what people say about the Alzai, you know, they say once they don it. There's something that comes over them, you know, and it could be different for you. It could be a set of questions and, you know, maybe insecurities that you're, you know, unpacking for other people. They're like, oh, I feel like I'm Vietnamese or maybe for, um, you know, for the queer community wearing an alzai and wearing a feminine alzai um, for them is is about being a um truly themselves and maybe they see themselves as a Vietnamese a feminized version of a Vietnamese person you know what I mean yeah, it's I'll, like I'll, you I'll know fun 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 story uh this year I had six of them made for myself because I found a way Good to for make you them cheap. I found an inexpensive way to make them okay. um, and I I I went to DC back in September and uh, I'd been wearing Aoyai all year, you know, many events I, I go to with my Aoyai. And I was in D.C. I brought three Aoyais because I had these multiple events that I had to go to. And I brought three. Every event that I went to, people came up to me and my good friends would come up to me. And this one man, he's in his he's 60, he's one of my best friends uh, in D.C., comes up to me and he's like a super macho guy that we all like I've known for 20 years. And he says to me, yo, Ken. I don't own an Aoyai, but that shit looks dope on you. And he's like this super like martial arts guy. And he asked me, I, I offered, would you like to have the, it was a black velvet Aoyai. Would you like oh, to have it? Nice. And he said, yes, I would love to have it. Oh, that's beautiful. So he said he would wear it to all like the, you know, the that festival was it. And then, so another friend of mine actually asked the same thing, if he can borrow it and he borrowed it for a gala and ended up getting my, so I brought three, gave two at in DC, uh-huh. and it 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 is something that um, that now I'm going to make more this year in 2024. Yeah, I'll, I'll make more and wear more. Um, but I just wanted to share my thoughts with you because you know this is something that we share this whole idea of Aoyai and and what it means for different segments of the Vietnamese population. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and it, I think it will have different ideas, and that's why I'm so. Um, that's why, I mean, for me, it really was in many ways, my gateway back to being what I think of being a Vietnamese person, you know, my, um, I, I wore a few during Bangé, during high school culture show, no, no, college culture show. And then when I started coming back to Vietnam as in my early twenties, I bought some fabric in Thailand, went to my, my grandmother's tailor. See, she's like, go to this tailor. She's still there. And I went to the tailor and I got it made. And 
and the tailor was telling me I had to dress it this way and that way, which is so Vietnamese, you know, to tell you how you need to have your alzai and then and then wearing that alzai and then and seeing how alzai had a re, you know, surgeons back in Vietnam and 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 just being really, you know, proud of the 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 ways in which the alzai has transformed, you know, led me to, you know, my work curating on the alzai and I'm working on an exhibit curating the alzai. And I know one of you had a guest, um, Mr. Si Huang, uh, who I've known for 30 years and we're working on a project with alzai. And so um, I, I would say that, you know, I think when I, when I try to think of one item that to me can speak about Vietnamese culture through through, you know, like looking at Vietnam through the lens of Alzai, but seeing how, um, you know, photographers look at Alzai, musicians look at Alzai, you know, uh, filmmakers look at Alzai, so on and so forth. Um, uh, business people look at Alzai and so on. You know, it's like, it, it, there's that really, you know, clear, easy connection that one can make about one's relationship to um, Vietnam and being Vietnamese and 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 being proud of this one item that is uniquely Vietnamese, even though it has origins from all over the place, but that's part of us, you know, having connections and origins and changes through, through different regimes and certain regimes, you know, we weren't even allowed to make Alzai until, you know, recently, and then we make Alzai again. And then and then the Vietnamese here and their Alzai is like pre-75 designs, you know, up to like say. 20 years ago, it was pre-70, no, maybe even 15 years ago. You had predominantly pre-1975 designs, which was all in Saigon silk and the mini, you know, with the with the white palazzo pants. And that's all they knew for years until they started buying outsides from Vietnam. Then it's like, oh, we can actually have different designs. We can send stuff back to Vietnam. We can, you know, you know, it's like this. This you can tell the history of our people through the flows of Alzai, you know, and and our reconnection with um our culture or Vietnam or being Vietnamese or being Vietnamese American. So yeah, I mean I I'm I'm not surprised that you can you can have this relationship with the Alzai and and pass it on, if you will, quite literally, um, to to people who yeah, maybe you had assumptions about and and deep down they just wanted connections to the outside and they you modeled for them and they're like, oh yeah, I want to look like Kenneth, you know? You know, you uh, have, I think, an event uh, next year with uh, the Aozai with uh, Ang Si Huang, which yeah. uh, came on to, who came on to the show. And um, I would like to revisit um, your conversation with Aoyai uh, next year, perhaps you know, reconnect and we can really just devote um, a whole uh, episode with um, you talking about the event for the oh, Aoyai. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, it's the Aoyai Festival in, in San Jose, um, where, uh, you know, the city has a day of, it's called Aoyai Day, May 15th. And so, yes, May 15th. So we we have annual um, event that's gone global, if you will, and we have international participants. So I'd love to talk more about yeah, that. Let's, because let's get into a whole episode of just the oh, Aoyai yeah, and the yeah. history and, you know, that perspective. I Absolutely. didn't like the Siwang in Vietnamese, but we, we should yeah. get an English episode, um, you know, sometime around the beginning of May. That sounds, yeah, maybe even earlier. earlier. <laughs> Earlier. Because because May is when we're having our big event. Okay. So I'm yeah. hoping you'll squeeze me in earlier and then we'll, we'll talk April, more about that. April. Kulin, thank you yeah. so much for coming on the podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed myself and, uh, you know. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed getting to know you and, and the work you're doing here. So I, I'm very honored that you asked me to come and speak on the, some issues. And likewise, I feel the same way. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast.